All right, so just to, uh, just to recap a few minutes of where we've already been, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time today, this, is, uh, this will be week seven in our series in Galatians, which is, an, is a letter penned by the Apostle Paul to the church in Galatia, which was a Roman province in what is now modern-day Turkey. And the overview of the letter is that the Christians in Galatia have fallen victim to some false teaching about the gospel by a group of teachers referred to as Judaizers. So Paul is now redirecting the minds of the Galatians back to the original and the only gospel, which is salvation by Christ's saving work at the cross alone. See, the Judaizers had been attempting to add to the gospel, telling that it's not Christ's work alone by which you are justified, but that you must be circumcised and not only adopt all the works of the Jewish law, but also all of their own added rules and regulations to be justified. And the problem with this, and the reason that Paul is writing this letter, is that following any part of the law for justification means keeping the whole law perfectly for final salvation. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. So this has some pretty serious implications then because we can't perfectly keep the law. And in this letter, Paul is giving them and us a redefining explanation of the gospel and of the things of which we are unified in. The thing that the law was given to reveal, which is our need for salvation because of our transgressions or our sin, and also our now receiving of salvation, being baptized into Christ, which is God's redemption. And this is the only gospel. All right, so before we dive in, let's let's talk about the danger for us which is that we can look at texts like this and we can think that this is them and not us, all right? We can can look at these and we can think, well, it's so clear that the Galatians had fallen victim to a false gospel, but not me. I mean, if you came in this morning and you got coffee out in our foyer, you would have seen we have something called the five solos hanging up on the wall, which says, I believe in grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. I believe those things, that I'm saved by that, right? If you haven't seen that, take a look at it. You might say, I believe those things, in which I would say is great. So did the Galatians at one point. What's being asked here is not only do you believe it, but do you live as though your entire identity comes from and rests completely in it, right? We just went through a weather change, for example, So just because I believe that it's cold outside, which I know it is, I'm wearing a flannel, all right, just because I believe that does not mean that right now I'm currently living in it. I'm not immersed in it. I'm not feeling the cold on my skin, thank God. All right, let's go ahead and jump in. Let's read the passage this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'll be reading from the ESV. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's some in the back. Please grab one of those. Let that be one of our gifts to you this morning. Take that with you. Be in Galatians 3, verse 26 through chapters 4, 7. I'm actually going to start in verse 23 just for a little bit of context from last week. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, We are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Verse 27. 
For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Chapter 4, verse 1. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the inherent word of God, church. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your glorious word, which you have given us along with the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, and direct us in every area of life. And this is not a book of made-up stories. These are testaments to your miraculous glory, to your goodness, and to the covenant-keeping promise that you have made to your people through Christ. I pray now that you would clearly present your gospel to your people through me this morning not only here in our congregation, but that it would clearly be presented in the other churches who are currently meeting right now. Father, I pray that any words that I might say this morning that aren't congruent with your gospel would fall on deaf ears and that we would only leave with the truths of your word. Holy Spirit, do a work in us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so let's go ahead and get this somewhat of a glaring statement part of the text kind of explained. For all of, my, all of my sisters in Christ in here, there is a lot of sons talk, right? Actually, there's only sons talk. So when, when Paul says sons of God and not daughters, it is not discounting your daughtership in any way. But remember Paul's audience and that by Jewish law and the culture of this time, women were actually not permitted to receive any part of a family inheritance. They were actually, on the other side of that, they were sold off as part of an inheritance. So Paul's grouping you in as being a son of God is, is not degrading. It's actually uplifting because it's adding you in the place of one who will receive full inheritance. Does that make sense? All right, that's, that's the short answer here. And if that's not good enough, just remember that all of us manly men have to deal with being called the bride of Christ for the rest of our lives. All right? All right, so a few months back, my wife and I, we sat down with some friends uh, for some dinner and we somehow got on the subject of something that has become a really big deal over the last few years. It's gotten a lot of hype. Maybe some of you have done it or, or heard of it or are really into it. Just by show of hands, how many have heard of Ancestry.com or have done it? I'm not going to shame you. Okay, yeah, quite a few of you. All right, so essentially, and you can correct me if I'm wrong because I have not done it, and you can pardon my lack of couth, but you, you spit in a tube, all right, you, you send it off in the mail, and about six weeks later, they send you back kind of a, a genealogical breakdown of, of where you've come from. And this hopefully gives you some insight to tell you why you are the way you are, maybe why you like kielbasa so much, I don't know. All right, it's a pretty interesting thing. 
And the fact that it gets so much hype goes to show us that we are fascinated with and love being able to form an identity. There's something in us that is inherently always searching for and trying to define our identity, isn't there? That's the question that's being asked. Who are we? And I think it's part natural for us to wonder about where we've come from, to be able to identify who we are. And I think another part are the questions that we have been asked since childhood. Everybody in here remembers probably being asked this question in grade school. What do you want to do when you grow up? Because that's a very logical question to ask a five-year-old. And we gave answers like a policeman or a firefighter or crazy things like race car driver or astronaut. Or if you were an overachiever, you said POTUS, President of the United States. My guess is that as a five-year-old, not many of us said, I want to live like Christ, living a sacrificial life of servanthood to the glory of my Father, did we? And yet for those who are chosen by God and have placed their faith in Christ, this is our primary call and certainly our primary identity. This is what comes through the good news of the gospel, through Christ's saving work that was transferred to us at the cross and what Paul is reconveying to the Galatians and us. So if you're taking notes this morning, this message is titled, A Unifying Identity. And I want to look at three things that I think and believe Paul wants to get across in this text. These are the things that we are given only in Christ. One, in Christ we are given a new identity. In Christ we are given a spirit of unity. And in Christ we are given a full inheritance. So in Christ we are given a new identity. In Christ we are given a spirit of unity. In Christ we are given a full inheritance. Let's look at that first one. In Christ, we are given a new identity. So look back at the text with me, if you would, verse 26, where we see that we are counted as sons of God through faith alone and are therefore image bearers of Christ. Paul says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. These are really intriguing words, speaking of Christ as if he were a a piece of clothing, a garment to be worn. So what does it mean? What does it mean to put on Christ? I believe there's a few things that Paul wants us to see about what it means to put on Christ as being our primary identity. One, putting on Christ is what locates our identity as belonging to Christ. Secondly, putting on Christ means we are called to be imitators of Christ. And thirdly, putting on Christ is what makes us acceptable to God. So let's take a look at that first one. To put on Christ is what locates our identity as belonging to Christ. So just like our clothing today tells people something about who we are, so does putting on Christ show people our Christianity, right? So think about this with me. Clothing separates job title, social status, gender, nationality, all of these things. When I say nurse or policeman or marine, We all think about them in a specific uniform that identifies them as such, don't we? In the same way, our identity as Christians is known because we have put on Christ. Our love for him and for people emanates from us because putting on Christ means that we are beginning to look and act more like him. And it's to our joy to be identified as belonging to him. Which brings us to the second thing. 
Putting on Christ means that we are to be the imitation of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul's call to the church in Corinth. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. It's a bold statement. Can we say that? Would you say that to your CG? So I had this one friend in high school. His, uh, his name's Austin. We're actually still friends today. And, uh, and he's a few years older than me, and he was kind of just one of those guys, kind of just too cool for school. Some of you know him. And, uh, and I thought he was pretty cool. I still think he's pretty cool. He's much cooler than I am. But the more that I spent time with him, the more I started to act like him, right? Dress like him, the whole thing. You've probably heard the saying, show me your friends and I'll show you your future, which is, it's just meaning that we tend to act like who we hang out with and we admire. And I did. I was putting something into practice because I was becoming like the person that I was spending all this time with. My identity was actually, was actually starting to look like his. And in a similar way, to be the imitation of Christ means that we put our faith into practice. It means that just like our clothes, hopefully, we're taking them into every area of life with us. That just like the clothes that we put on, we are putting on the virtues of Christ. Tim Keller puts it like this. He says, we are to dress like Jesus. Because being like Christ is how we show the world around us Christ. So putting on Christ, living in this new identity is what locates us as belonging to Christ. It's what causes us to be imitators of Christ. And third, putting on Christ is what makes us acceptable to God. When Paul says at the end of verse 26 that those who have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, he is literally equating it to covering us with Christ. God covers our sin and our nakedness with Christ. We sang that this morning in Rock of Ages. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. We see this in the Garden of Eden when sin entered the world through Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. When they sinned, what did they do? Well, first they, they became aware of their nakedness and they covered themselves and they hid. And God seeing all of this doesn't remove their coverings, but in grace and compassion, he covers them with something better. He covers them with flesh and blood from an animal. This is a picture of Christ of our Savior, whose flesh would be broken, whose blood would be shed to pay for and cover our sin and our nakedness. This is also a picture of the law and of Christ. One is a guardian until the promise of something that will cover fully and save eternally will come. So Paul then moves from reminding us of our primary identity and that we have put on Christ, making his work, not ours, the pinnacle of justification and our identity, and to reminding us that just because the work he did, we alone are saved. And this new identity in Christ brings unity with the Father and one another. It's what we share in with our brothers and sisters who have also put on Christ. His spirit now unifies us. So my second point this morning, in Christ, we are given a spirit of unity. So let's look back at the text again, verse 28. Paul says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul breaks down cultural, 
social and gender barriers here. Not in a way that says there are not still distinctions between us. That's, that's not what Paul's saying here. But that we are united in and through Christ, even with all these distinguishing factors. He's saying being in Christ together means that we are Christians before anything or anyone else. All right? This is important for us to see because what Paul is not saying is that you need to look more like this person over here or that you need to deny your culture and become more, I don't know, Ashland, all right? Or a big one in America today that you need to speak this one language. He's saying to all, whatever your culture, language, gender, social status, race may be, be more like Christ in it and treat each other as you would treat Christ. Because being baptized into Christ means becoming a part of a new family, being given a new identity. Verse 6, chapter 4, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. We are now called to be the same examples of Christ, no matter our differences. Because despite our differences, in Christ we all share in the same spirit and are therefore called to share in the same fruit of that spirit. Which if we look a little further in Galatians 5, which we will, we will see that none of the fruit of the spirit is confined to a certain social status, gender, language, or even demographic. Galatians 5, 22, look at it with me. It's just a few pages over to your right. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit, church, is something that we all share in together along with the individual giftings and talents that God has given each of us. And God uses each of our individual giftings and talents for the building of his church to the glory of his name. And that's what unity is. It's, it's working together for a common goal, which for those who have put on Christ, who are unified with each other by his spirit, the common goal is and must be the glory of God alone. So hear me. We all still have our individual giftings that God's given us, the things that that make us unique and that are a part of our identity. And God doesn't take away our uniqueness, but in Christ, he unifies us in it. And the things that once separated us now unite us by the same spirit to the glory of the same God because of the same sacrifice that we all share in who place our faith in Christ. Amen? 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Same spirit, same identity in Christ. Because we are Christ, because we share in his spirit, we also share in his righteousness together, which means we are given his same inheritance. So my third and final point this morning 
In Christ, we are given full inheritance. So let's look back at the text again. Verse 29, chapter 3. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Paul is pointing back to what he said in our passage from last week that we heard from Chris, pointing to Abraham as the father of all nations, not just the Jew or the Gentile, but all who place their faith in Christ. He points to how Abraham's righteousness was counted to him by faith in the promise of God, and that through his offspring, who is Christ, God would fulfill his covenant with his people, and that the law, which was not given until 430 years after that promise was made, did not annul God's promise, but was given as a guardian to reveal transgression or sin until the promise would be fulfilled in the coming of Christ. I really love how one commentator puts it. He says it like this. Old Testament believers looked forward on the basis of the work of the promised Messiah, while New Testament believers, that's us, looked back to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but each are included only by faith in God's covenant promise. So Paul is saying to the Galatians, look, You're not Christ because you kept the law so well. You are Christ because upon hearing, you believed with faith and then lived out that faith just as Abraham did. The law that you were enslaved to simply revealed the sin that you couldn't redeem so that Christ could fulfill the law that you couldn't keep. I'm gonna say that again. The law that we were enslaved to simply revealed the sin that we couldn't redeem so that Christ could fulfill the law that we couldn't keep. The law enslaves and condemns what only Christ frees and justifies. Verse 3, chapter 4. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Notice Paul's words here. He's saying we're heirs not by earning, not by circumcision or the keeping of the law, but by adoption. Paul's main drive here is that Jew or Greek doesn't qualify you. Being circumcised or uncircumcised is not what justifies you, but it is by faith in Christ only that we are adopted into a new family and given full inheritance. I know some of you in here who have adopted or were adopted. An adoption is a past tense process. What I mean is you don't get adopted and then have to earn your keep to stay adopted. Because upon your adoption, you became a legal, permanent part of the family of which you were adopted into. You had a status change. 
You were given full inheritance of that family name and everything that comes with it. In the same way, we who have been adopted into the family of God obtain full inheritance. We've had a status change. We share in the same spiritual DNA as all of those bought by his blood. It's as if, church, we were never orphaned. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Focus in on those first two words, in him. In him we have obtained an inheritance, not by, not by any of our own moral goodness, not by any works of the law, not by coming to church this morning or being a good spouse or anything but faith in Christ which too was given to us by God for his glory to the purpose of his will, as we just read. Trying to earn salvation through works of the law or for our own purposes this morning, through, through your own moral goodness, would be like knowing that you have a secured inheritance. I'm talking money here, cash money, right? It'd be like knowing that you have a secured inheritance, a chunk of change that is so large, you never have to work again but you still work a nine to five, seven days a week, never using any of what you have been given, but simply and foolishly relying on your own strength and your own work ethic to get you by. That sounds crazy, does it not? And yet that's often how we think of and treat our secured inheritance that is already ours. And unlike that, money will never run out. So putting on Christ every day Taking on this new identity together in a spirit of unity means living like people who know their inheritance is secured and eternal. It's guaranteed. It doesn't have an expiration date, which means that we live like free men and women because we are. Because as Paul concludes in chapter 4, verse 7, we are no longer slaves but sons and heirs through God. So what does this all mean? What does it mean for our lives that we are unified with Christ and one another and are therefore shareholders of his inheritance, heirs with God? I just have one, one summarizing point this morning. And if you walk away with anything from this message, I, I hope that it's this. God is pleased with us as his sons because when he looks at us, he sees his son. Let me say that again. God is pleased with you, church, as his sons, because when he looks at you, he sees his son. Is this how you think of God, as pleased with you? Because the way you see God and how you think he sees you will define how you live with or without your identity fully rooted in Christ. Are you living like a slave who is afraid of his master? always waiting for him to punish you or reward you, trying to earn his favor? 
Or are you living like a child of a loving and caring father whose favor you already have in Christ? Something that is essential for us to remember and honestly something that I struggle with. God is pleased with me as his son because not only did Christ take away the curse that we deserved because of our sin, which is death, but he transferred to us the blessing that he deserved which means our identity is no longer a prize to be won, but a prize that's already been given. It's like running a marathon that you know is already won for you. You still have to run. You're in the race. You've got to train. But here's the kicker, right? And the sentence that we don't like, the outcome is not dependent on how well you perform. The outcome is dependent upon Christ who already performed, who already won, church. Our inheritance is secured. So in knowing this, why would we ever place our faith in or try to find our identity in anything or anyone else but Christ? Why would we attempt to add to a gospel that is in need of no addition and will not tolerate any substitution? You know how you live like a son of a father who is pleased with you? I can tell you how my one-and-a-half-year-old son does it, which is actually much better than how I do it most of the time with God. He takes advantage. He takes advantage of the blessings that dad gives. He eats my food. He stays under my roof. He doesn't worry about anything. You guys know him. If you've seen him, he's happiest most. He's going around with a thing of Cheerios. That's all he needs. He trusts me, along with his mom, I'm not discluding my wife in this, he trusts me to provide everything for him. He doesn't try to earn any part of what I give him. I mean, that little freeloader has never once (laughs) asked me if I need money or if I need help mowing the grass. And guess what? I'm not one bit mad about that. And I'm a very fallible human father but it's because I love him and I'm already pleased with him that I do it. How much more so is your father in heaven looking only for your faith and full trust in him, in the work of his son, that we may be complete in our joy together, knowing our God is pleased with us as his sons, because when he looks at us, he sees his son. So where does your faith and your identity lie? Is it in what you do? Is it, in, is it in what you want to do? Who you want to be? What you've done? Who you think that you are? Or does it rest completely in the work of Christ at the cross where you went be- from being slave of sin and death to son and heir of the only true and eternal kingdom of God? Let's pray. Father, cement your words into our hearts this morning. Give us a deeper love and affection for you and for your son and for the identity that we have in him and for the glorious truth of the gospel that cannot be taken away from or added to. I'll pray again what I already prayed earlier. May we go from here with only the truths of the gospel in our hearts. May we find rest, hope, 
and above all joy for the work of our Savior at the cross. It's because of his work alone that we stand as your justified people. Because of his glorious work that we have relationship and right standing with you. And we can proclaim that we are no longer slaves of the fear of man, for we are children of God, heirs of Christ, shareholders of his righteousness. May we find great hope and peace in that truth this morning. Holy Spirit, help us to live as free men and women who proclaim the greatness of your glory to those around us. May it be the very thing that we are known for. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.